was sharing with some people, um, I don't know, I guess it was this morning, um, this is kind of odd because this is the first, like I had a month off. From, from preaching, and so this is weird. Just uh, we, we've missed a Sunday, and other people have been preaching for us, and so um, it's it's so good to be able to to be back in Mark uh, to to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, we do have a lot to cover. Uh, Mark five one through twenty. Um, it's a one story, and yet it's a lot of text. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and dive right into it. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter five, uh, verses one through twenty. Uh, but as we're, as you're doing that, I do want to, because it's been so long since it seems like we've been in Mark, I just want us to uh, to familiarize ourselves with one of the things that, that Mark has been about to this point, uh, what Mark has focused on specifically in the last uh, chapter or two of this gospel, and that is what does it look like for us to be a disciple? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus as his disciples? And we saw that the discipleship, according to Jesus, is actually to be a part of his family. And it's all about how our heart's posture is related to Jesus, how, how we think about, how we respond to Jesus. Do we respond with obedience? Do we respond with this willingness to, to seek him, or do we just kind of dismiss him? And this is what discipleship is about. This is what this is uh, all about in these last couple chapters. You see, everyone is welcome to be a part of Jesus' family, but it is only those who respond to the call of the gospel with this obedience with this faith in the message that will find a spot waiting for them in God's kingdom. See, many people hear the message of the gospel, they hear the message of the kingdom, and yet few people actually take it to heart. Few people actually choose to pursue Jesus. And this has been, personally, this has been such a good, rich reminder over the past month or so that this life of faith that we all are on is never stagnant, that we are either moving toward Jesus in obedience or we're, we're moving away from him by hardening our hearts. And so the last couple of chapters of Mark, Mark 3, Mark 4, have all been asking us, how am I going to respond to the message on Jesus' lips? How am I going to respond to this message of the kingdom that Jesus is coming to proclaim? And a couple of weeks ago, if you remember our last section of Mark, uh, was the story of Jesus calming the storm. And Pastor Chris led us through that text and reminds us or showed us that, that Jesus calming the storm in the Sea of Galilee uh, after he's teaching all day, these crowds by the sea, it grows dark, he sets off with his disciples onto the sea to go to the other side. And then this massive storm breaks out and, and Jesus and his disciples, uh, they actually, well, not Jesus, just his disciples, they actually are so afraid that they think they're actually going to die which is startling because most of them either grew up on the Sea of Galilee or grew up near the Sea of Galilee, and so they would be familiar or, or at least comfortable being on the water. And yet in this moment, as they're in the midst of this storm in the middle of the night, they, they conclude, this is so bad that we are going to die. And this terror fills them, and then they see Jesus do something that only God can do. He speaks and nature listens. And this is meant to evoke memories or to remind us of other times where God has spoken and nature has listened. Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and, and nature comes into existence. It listens to God. Noah and the flood, God speaks and the waters come down and then God speaks again and the waters disappear. I read from Exodus just a a few moments ago, 
another time where God speaks or God acts and nature listens. God splits the Red Sea in order to save his people in the Exodus. And these disciples, as they see Jesus doing the exact same thing that God has done in the Old Testament, they are terrified and they ask this question, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And that's the question that we also have to come to grips with. Who is this? And how you answer that question really sets the trajectory for your life, for your heart, either toward discipleship or toward this indifference toward God that will eventually lead to hostility toward God. And this question, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him, really is the the foundation that, that... our passage is built on. It builds on this question uh, that Mark leaves hanging at the end of this story. Who is this? And we've been, uh, before we are given an answer later in the gospel of Mark, we're actually given another piece of evidence for us to take into account. So in the previous section, we see Jesus in this powerful display of his authority over nature, and now we're going to see Jesus' powerful authority over evil itself. These two stories are interconnected. The text continues this journey of Jesus leaving uh, Capernaum and going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to this place that Mark refers to as the country of the Gerasenes. And as he's on his way over there, he gets to the other side and he encounters this demon-possessed man. This is one of the most fascinating, most vivid stories in the Gospel of Mark, probably one of the most fascinating, vivid stories uh, in the Bible, uh, certainly of Jesus's ministry. And as we're going to see, this is quite literally, not an exaggeration, this is quite literally like a scene from a horror movie. As Jesus steps onto the land, this is something that we see is this moment from a horror movie all of a sudden becomes this incredible picture of Jesus's mercy for this most miserable person of all humanity. And so as I mentioned, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And as we work our way through this text, you're going to notice that this story really breaks down into three separate encounters that Jesus has. First, this encounter between Jesus and the demons. Second, this encounter between Jesus and the crowd. And then finally, this encounter between Jesus and who I'm referring to as as his new disciple. So if you have a Bible, please follow along, starting in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So I mentioned earlier that this text picks up right after the previous story. Notice the parallel here between verse 1, which we just read, and Mark chapter 4, verse 35, the beginning of the previous story. It says this, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go to the other side. So Jesus has in his mind to go to the other side, to go to this country of the Gerasenes, and in the midst of this moment where, where Jesus has got a mission to, to travel to the country of Gerasenes, we have what happened in Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41, this story of, of Jesus calming the storm. Now, the disciples are undoubtedly still rattled uh, by that storm. Remember, it took place in the middle of the night. They've been beaten by the wind. They've been beaten by the waves. They're fearing for their lives. And all of that, the, the terror of thinking they were going to die from the storm, is actually the second most terrifying thing that has happened to them. The the, the most terrifying thing uh, uh, that took place that night was actually that Jesus had the power to stop nature's storm dead in its tracks. 
And so here they are, they're, they're terrified. All this time they're with Jesus, they're beginning to realize they have really no idea who this is, just how powerful he is. And because they're waterlogged, because they are exhausted, they're longing for solid ground on their feet, and they're longing for the rising of the sun, they see the shore off in the distance, and they begin to say, all right, this is perfect. We're finally going to be out of the, the boat. We're finally going to be back on shore. We can, we can rest. We can catch our breath. It'll be okay. And yet, in this, this moment, uh, uh, we, we see this is a, an important time in Jesus' ministry. This is the first time Jesus actually leaves Jewish territory and goes to a Gentile area. Jesus is intentional here. He's going to a, Jew, uh, a non-Jewish area. He's going to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus knows exactly what is before him. He, he knows that there is this man waiting for him, this demon-possessed man, but the disciples don't. The disciples here, there's probably just this moment of relief that there's a shore, and then they see someone standing on the shore waiting for them, and then this is probably a continuation of the terror that they experience on the sea, and so they draw near to the, to the shore, and as they get there, all of these hopes for a, for a rest all of these hopes for this time to recover, they're, they're not going to be possible because the man standing on the shore waiting for them is not just any man. It is a demon-possessed man. He's waiting for them to get out of the boat, waiting for them to get closer. And the text continues to describe, by describing just how bad this man's torment was, picking up in verse 3. He, this man, lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So here we have this description of this man, uh, what his life is like right now. Here's a man, he's been thrown out of his village by his neighbors and probably his family because of the severity of his demon possession. He has nowhere left to turn, and so he decides to go and live among the tombs that are right by the Sea of Galilee. About uh, 10 years ago, I was in a remote village in Latin America, and I, I was struggling with this high fever because uh, of the stomach flu that I, that I had, and I decided to try to sleep it off in the afternoon. Uh, only problem was I woke up in the middle of the night ready for the day to start. And so uh, one of the people I was staying with, uh, he, he was up as well, and so he decided, hey, let's just go for a walk. And so we start walking through um, this region, or so the, this neighborhood, if you will, in this small Latin American village. And uh, uh, there's no electricity, there's no street lights, um, but eventually my eyes begin to, to get accustomed to the dark, and I begin to see uh, what uh, or where we're walking. And I begin to realize, oh, we're actually walking through a, a cemetery. We're walking through these tombs, this crypt uh, for the, this village. And, and uh, I'm not someone who believes in ghosts, but if I did, they lived there. This was not what you think of when you think of a, a cemetery. This isn't a carefully manicured modern cemetery with, with beautiful flowers and, and uh, you know, marble and granite stones. This is a place, stench of death, the, the spread of weeds, this crude memorials, all really incited this primal fear within me. I, I ran back to that house as fast as I could and said, you know what, I'm just going to sit here and wait until dawn. Now, granted, I was still slightly delirious when this took place, but... This 
is, I think, the same sort of fear that the people experienced, that the disciples experienced when they saw this man coming out of the tombs. This isn't a, a, a beautiful cemetery. This is, this is something where, in ancient times, people believed that ghosts lived. This is a place where people in ancient times believed demons lived and, and the ghouls lived. This is a place where the man had made his home. He's living among the dead. He's living among these evil spirits. But it's not just because he lives among the dead. It's not just because this encounter takes place at night. This man is covered in scars. He's covered in dried blood. And Luke actually, the Gospel of Luke, tells us that he was also naked. It doesn't, give, it doesn't take too much imagination for us to picture this man smelling terrible, having this unkempt hair, this man who is completely dirty, this man who is wearing bruises and scars all over his body from the chains that he has snapped off with his strength, breaking them to pieces. Any locals who used to try to bind him for their safety as well as for this man's safety, uh, they've long since given up because this man is just too strong. He's just too powerful for them. And so the text here describes this man as more of an animal than a man. He's a man who's running all over the, the Galilean hills, and, and he's screaming, and he's cutting himself with these rocks. And it, that's either a, an attempt from this demon to try to kill him, or it's a, it's a form of pagan worship. This uh, was a no, well-known way of worshiping demons, was by cutting yourself with rocks. And this text describes this man in this way, and, and I wasn't exaggerating. This is a lot like a horror movie here. And so Jesus and his boat, they, they draw near to the shore, and this demon-possessed man, he sees them from a distance, and he runs to the shore to meet them as they get out of the boat. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19 tells us just how serious this moment is, just how dangerous it is. In Acts chapter 19, we see this moment where a man who is possessed by a single evil spirit, he beats up and he bloodies a group of seven exorcists. And what we'll soon see here is that this man is, is filled with an army of evil spirits, not just one, but a legion of evil spirits. And this man, this, the, these spirits rather, they, they hate Jesus with, a, with an unending hatred. And yet when he gets to Jesus, he doesn't attack Instead, he falls down before him. The demons may hate Jesus, but they also recognize Jesus' lordship in a way that the disciples are just now beginning to comprehend. You have your Bible continue in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, these verses uh, reveal that two things take place almost instantaneously. The first thing is this. In verse 8, we see that Jesus begins to rebuke the evil spirits instantaneously. Jesus rebukes these evil spirits, uh, not unlike the way he handles the waves. Exact same phrase, actually. He rebukes the wind and the waves. He rebukes these evil spirits. But he apparently says this multiple times based off of verse 8. So does this mean that Jesus is actually having trouble casting out this demon? Well, anyone who has uh, had the unlucky privilege of putting toddlers to bed knows that that's certainly not the case. They, uh, when you put a child to bed, uh, they know you're in charge, you know that you're in charge, and, yet, and you know they're eventually going to cave, and yet they will still put up quite the fight. They will still come out of their bed at least four or five times before they finally acquiesce, and that is the case here. This, this 
this demon sees, these demons see that the writing is on the wall, that they will eventually listen to Jesus because they know his lordship, and yet they're still going to put up quite the fight. They're still going to stall. So that's the first thing. We see that Jesus immediately, at the, instantaneously, starts saying, hey, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. At the same time, the demons try to drown out Jesus' voice with a cry of their own. So let's, let's break apart, phrase by phrase, what the demons are saying to Jesus. First they say, what do you have to do with me? Now this is a little clunky in, in modern day English, but this is a, a common way in the Old Testament uh, for, uh, for people to address impending conflict. And so this is essentially like the demons are saying, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you in my territory? Why aren't you back in Galilee? You don't belong here. Why'd you come all this way? What do you have to do with me, Jesus? So that's the first thing they say. Second thing they say is Jesus, son of the most high God. Now this shows that they recognize just who Jesus is. This isn't a messianic term. This isn't a term referring to the the king of Israel. This is a full-fledged declaration of Jesus' divinity. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus knows exactly who he is. The only people who have no idea, the disciples. They don't understand who Jesus is. They're cowering in fear. They don't really fully grasp who Jesus is. The final phrase the, the demons say is this, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This is an attempt by the demons to salvage what's probably just this hopeless situation for them. Ancients believed that the key to controlling a spirit was actually to call on the name of a spirit that was more powerful than that spirit. Bring them to your cause. So the demons, they confess that Jesus is the son of the most high God, and now they say, hey, we're going to call on God himself. God himself will be the one who stops Jesus from casting these demons out of this man. Now, demons are aware of who Jesus is. They're aware of the establishment of Jesus' kingdom and what that that means for them. They know that eternal torment awaits them for their rebellion against God. But here they're pleading with Jesus. They're pleading with Jesus saying, hey, it's not yet time for eternal punishment. It's not yet time for your victory to be fully realized. So don't torment us, Jesus. Let's continue in verse 9. See how Jesus responds. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So here we see that Jesus starts by asking this demon what his name is, but the demon evades the question in in a sense. Demon doesn't say what my my name is, X. He he doesn't say that. Instead, they they tell Jesus how many there are dwelling in this man. And in a sense, yes, this is a a way of him answering Jesus' question. It's also, I think, more importantly, this sneering taunt directed toward Jesus. Jesus. It's almost as if they're saying, hey, Jesus, there's an army of us in here. There's only one of you. Do you really think you can take this all on by yourself? A Roman legion consisted of anywhere between 5,000 and 6,000 units. Now, don't read this too literally. Uh, 
you know, demons aren't exactly known for their ability to tell the truth. There, there might not have been 5,000 or 6,000 of them dwelling in there. The important thing is, is there is an army of evil spirits here. There's this insurmountable uh, army possessing this man. No man, no mere man could possibly hope to stand against this army of evil. But then again, Mark is asking us, who is Jesus? Is Jesus just a mere man? And we see from this text that Jesus faces this overwhelming army of evil on his own. And he prevails. You see, the spirits begin to beg Jesus not to send them out of the country. The Gospel of Luke gives us a little bit more insight on what they mean by that. They don't want to be sent into the abyss or Hades, this place of the dead. Instead, they ask to be sent into this this herd of pigs that's nearby. And so Jesus allows them. Jesus allows them to go into these, and Jesus is completely and utterly in control of the demons. They can't do a single thing without asking Jesus for permission. Here's Jesus, one person facing an army of 5,000 evil spirits, and there's not a single moment where Jesus is not completely in charge of every single facet of this encounter. You see, the pigs are overwhelmed by these spirits, and in a frenzy, they stampede over the cliffs, overlooking the sea, and they go into the water, and they all drown there. And this, in a way, this is a way of displaying the demon's desire for destruction. It's almost a way of saying, hey, this is what they wanted to do this man. But also, I think it's, excuse me, uh, it's what they wanted to do to this man. If they would have had their way, this is what they would have ended up with. They, they hate God. They, they hate those who bear his image. And, and so they desire, desire to see this man die. They see, desire to see him condemned to eternal destruction. So this shows us the demon's murderous intent, but it also shows us something else. I think this other important truth, it is a foretaste of what will one day await them. They may have fled eternal punishment for now, this eternal abyss, and yet now they've ended up in the watery abyss. And it shows us that Jesus is in charge. It shows us that Jesus has complete authority over their future, over his victory, over sin and death. Now, before we continue... I want us to just ask a question looking at this. Mark is placing this question before us in the first century. In this first encounter between Jesus and the demons, Mark is asking us one simple question. Is there anything that's too powerful for Jesus? Is there anything that is too powerful for Jesus? Is there any mountain that is too high for Jesus to conquer? Any stronghold that is too great for Jesus? Any addiction that's too enslaving for his liberating power? The disciples, they just get done asking in the previous story, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it's almost as if Mark is saying, okay, don't just stop there. Ask this question as well. Who is this that can defeat an army of evil spirits with just a single word? Nothing is beyond the incredible saving power of Jesus. That's the first encounter that we see here. Jesus and these demons This battle between good and evil leads to a second encounter. It's an encounter between Jesus and the crowd, picking up in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. 
And they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. The herdsmen, they're in charge of these pigs overnight. They get terrified. They run away. They run back to town. They're probably terrified. Um, and so they just, yeah, they just head back to the nearby city. And this curi- they, they begin to say, hey, this is what took place. You wouldn't believe it. You, you have no idea what we just experienced. And this curiosity leads to a crowd that begins to gather on the shore near Jesus. And, and yet what the crowd sees is not at all what they expect. And maybe these people in the crowd, maybe this crowd from the village, uh, thought that the herdsmen were just mistaken. After all, stampedes happen sometime and it's unfortunate. Maybe just one or two of these pigs got startled and they started a a stampede that led to this terrible loss of the entire herd. And so on their way to the shore, maybe they're beginning to rationalize and say, okay, well, this is probably what happened. Uh, It's it's unfortunate, but, but there's probably a reasonable explanation for this. But then they get to the shore and then they, they see Jesus, but not just Jesus, See him sitting with this demon-possessed man on the shore, and they're talking. The end of John tells us that Jesus sometimes made breakfast for people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing here. This is in the morning now. It would make sense if if they're sitting and and talking and, and having some food. But they're sitting there. This man is in his right mind. Gone is this man who is screaming, evil, superpowered, animalistic. Gone is this man who was a terror to every single person who came near him. And instead, we now see a man who once was naked, now wearing clothes. A man who once was wild, now sitting at Jesus' feet. A man who once lived among the dead, now sitting talking with the author of life. And Mark tells us this is crowd gathers and they begin to be afraid. So why? Why are they afraid? Well, I want us to consider this from the perspective of these people, from these pagans, these, these people who, um, who don't know Jesus, don't know uh, the God of the Bible. They've come to see this man's condition as something that's just a way of life. This man, when he first succumbed to evil, perhaps his friends and his family, they sought to the favor of their gods in order to free him from this terrible power. But not only did it not work, it actually made his condition worse. Soon this man begins to maim himself. Even those who were, even they were hurt by by interacting with him. And they get to this point where any sort of interaction with this man would be a a harm, would would be a detriment to your own life. And so they, they send him out of town. They refuse to associate with this man. And now they see him completely clothed and completely in his right mind. They, they hear this word that he has been freed. What's more, there's, there's eyewitnesses who have seen this entire army of evil subdued by, this, by the words of this unassuming Jewish man from the other side of the lake. So what's going on? Well, these, these people, they, they, I think they realize something that, that we can oftentimes miss from our uh, perspective of, of Christianity. I think that their responses show that they're actually smarter than us in a way. We can read this text and we can walk away and say, hey, you know what, that's a neat story. That's pretty cool what Jesus did. 
kudos, you, you saved this man from, from these evil spirits, but, but we, we won't let it really change us. But the crowds, they understand the implications of what Jesus just did in a way that is far better than us today. And those implications terrified them. They knew that if Jesus was powerful enough to conquer evil with a, with a single word, if they knew, if, if Jesus was powerful enough to demand that these spirits leave this man, then Jesus was also powerful enough to demand every single one of them to give their lives to him. He could demand and should receive anything and everything that he wanted from these people. And that thought terrified them. That terrified them. This is, this is where the crowds, they, they realize that it's impossible for us to reach a middle ground with Jesus. You see, if Jesus stuck around, if Jesus continues to teach here in this country of the Gerasenes, then, then Jesus is powerful enough he is authoritative enough. He is worthy enough to receive anything and everything. That he is someone that is worthy to surrender our entire lives to. And these pagans, they're, they're just completely, bluntly honest. That's not something they wanted to do. And so they asked Jesus to leave. They said, Jesus, we, we don't want you around here. Please leave. Please go back to the other side of the Galilee. This is where the crowds are a whole lot smarter than many of us today. This is where the crowds, they, they recognize something that we can oftentimes miss. They, they recognize that it is impossible to stay neutral with Jesus. You can't reach a compromise with him. You can't just give him a piece of your life and then keep the majority to yourself. When we are face to face with this Jesus who conquers evil just with his voice, you aren't going to be able to go just halfway. That's what so many people do today. And so in this second encounter that we see in this gospel, the first encounter, we, we question, you know, is anything too powerful for Jesus? And the answer, of course, is no. This, the second question builds on that. And that's simply this, do I really want to surrender everything to Jesus? If Jesus really is the most powerful person who has ever lived, that there's nothing too powerful or strong for him, the second question is, do I really want to surrender everything to him? And the crowds, they ultimately say no. They say, no, I don't want to. They harden their hearts, and they actually beg Jesus to leave because they don't want to surrender everything to him. But at least they didn't delude themselves into thinking that they could have Jesus and the world. The Lord of mercy here. He's revealed his power. And the implications are clear. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I really want to surrender everything to this Jesus? This all-powerful Jesus. And the text closes with one final encounter. This one between Jesus and the man himself. I'm referring to him as the, his new disciple. Notice in verse 15, if you have your Bible, verse 15, it tells us that this man is sitting with Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, I think it's verse 34, Jesus is, Jesus is sitting with people who we find out are actually his disciples. 
There are those who sit around Jesus. Those are the ones who are truly his disciples. Mark 4, it is not the crowds, it is simply those who stay with Jesus, who don't want to leave him, that, that hear Jesus' teaching, that see Jesus' miracles, and they want something deeper from Jesus. They want to understand the deeper significance. And so here, already, we see that this man is, is becoming a disciple of Jesus. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This text actually hinges on the word begged, if you read through it. The demons begged Jesus. The crowd begs Jesus. And this man begs Jesus. But this man begs Jesus for something good. He begs Jesus to go with him. The crowds recognize that Jesus' presence will cost them everything, and yet this man begs Jesus to go with him because he is willing to give him everything, to be in his presence. What a powerful contrast here between the crowds, those who cannot be troubled with the, the call of the gospel, and those who are true disciples like this man. Because of what Jesus has done for this man, he is willing to give him everything. And yet, surprisingly, Jesus refuses. He says, no, you're not, you're not allowed to travel with me. Instead, he charges him to go back home. He sends him back home to tell all of his friends and all of his family what the Lord has done for him. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus actually sends someone out as a missionary to tell people about what Jesus has done for them. He says, hey, you've received mercy. Now go tell people that mercy. You have this story of God's goodness in your life. Now go share that story with everyone that you come into contact with. And this man shows radical obedience. He not only returns home, he not only tells his family and his friends how God has rescued him, he actually goes throughout the entire region and begins to tell them about this mercy God has shown to him. The Decapolis here It's this region, uh, a geographic region on the east side of the Jordan River. It's probably the same equivalent uh, of size as like Galilee or or Judea. This is a a region, and he travels throughout the area telling people of this story of God's mercy in his life. The mercy he has experienced overflows into every conversation that he has. And so he takes up this role of an evangelist, and he travels throughout the region. And as, as, as he's traveling, he's telling everyone what God has, has done for him. Jesus, actually, he returns back to Galilee. And this man, he doesn't have anything he doesn't, uh, besides this story. He doesn't have a theological education. He hasn't spent more than just a, an hour or two with Jesus. He goes back and he, he shares. He has this heart that burns, this desire to be obedient. And he shares wherever he can of this faithfulness that God has shown to him. And a few chapters later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus returns from the Sea of Galilee and he goes back to the region of the Decapolis. And we see a glimpse of the fruit of this man's testimony. Mark 7, 31 tells us that Jesus enters into the Decapolis for the first time since Mark chapter 5. And and, and he's met with this crowd. 
Not only is Jesus met with his crowd, but while opposition is mounting against Jesus in, in Jewish territory, here we see these Gentiles declare in Mark chapter 37, 37. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What's more, there's so many people that have heard this testimony of this man that Mark 8 tells us that Jesus has this crowd of 4,000 that are waiting to hear his teaching. And it's all because of this man's testimony. Don't underestimate the power of obedience and a story of God's mercy. You, you see, that I think that's what Mark is trying to tell us this morning this combination of obedience and a story of mercy. He tells us this incredible moment in this man's life, and he's teaching us about what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple according to Mark 5, 1 through 20? I think it's this. God's people are transformed by mercy and tell of mercy. They're transformed by mercy and they tell of mercy. To truly be a disciple means to encounter the incredible mercy of God and be transformed by it. And then to just simply tell others about that mercy at work in your life. And for some of us this morning, we just need to come to grips with the power of Jesus' mercy. This passage makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the claims, that, the, the, the chains that bind us. It may be addiction, maybe thoughts of, of self-harm or other self-destructive tendencies. It may be unhealthy patterns of life. It just may be complacency or a love for the world that we should shake. But we can have, we can have this confidence that Jesus is able to overcome it all. That's one of the things that I find so powerful about Celebrate Recovery one of the things that uh, Randy and his team have been doing so faithfully communicating this power of the gospel that there is nothing that is too strong for the Lord of mercy. This Jesus who speaks and armies of evil are vanquished. And if you find yourself at a place this morning where you find yourself uh, in chains to something, whether it's, it's habits that you wish that you could shake, whether it's something that, that even our culture finds as acceptable, like too much time on your phone, or too much TV, or, or too much entertainment, I urge you to find freedom at the cross and celebrate recovery, a great place to start. What do we do when we encounter God's mercy? What do we do when we encounter this transforming power of God's mercy? Well, we simply share about that mercy at work in our lives. We, we share about how we who were once captives have been set free. As Paul says at the beginning of Colossians, we who were once in the domain of darkness have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's no need for a seminary degree. There's no need for formal training. There's simply a need for a willingness to say, this is what God has done for me. You see, the reality is each and every one of us is an evangelist at heart, and you may say, whoa, well, that's not me. We are all evangelists at heart. We are all evangelists for the things that have changed our lives. When we truly believe that in the power of something or someone to change our lives, then we can't help but share it with other people. Let me give you an example of this. Back in November, 
Crystal's brother got married in Chicago. And on our way out there, we decided to head through central Illinois uh, to spend some time with my grandmother. And uh, while we were at her house, we saw she had one of those robot vacuums. You guys know robot vacuums, right? I'll be honest, I um, have always um, been too superior for a robot vacuum. I mean, come on, it takes 10 minutes to actually vacuum, right? And so, it uh, can't be worth it. Uh, why, why on earth would you have one of those things? Well, uh, we, we saw it in action, and I began to get intrigued. Uh, went home, started to do research on these things, and um, which, which models were the best, and, and you know, what, if, if we were, you know, I was a skeptic, if we were interested in this, what would, what would we want to do? Well, there was a sale on Black Friday, and so I decided, hey, why not? I, I got one. Crystal and I, the thing comes in the mail, Crystal and I are both really skeptical when the thing come, comes in the mail, but we said, hey, you know what, we'll give it a try. I was at work, so just right over here in the office, and I start getting this, these texts from Crystal when she gets it started. Now, I'm just going to read these texts to you. Jordan, I am vacuuming and nursing our child at the same time. My life as a stay-at-home mom is forever changed. <laughs> Two minutes later, seriously, this thing is amazing. I am really sorry that I'm doing this without you. Five minutes later, I've been watching this vacuum the whole time and I let out an audible squeal every few minutes with how awesome this room is looking. I can't wait for you to see it when you get home. Five more minutes later, well, gotta go change a blowout while I vacuum. I'm so thrilled about this thing that nothing is going to get me down. Crystal's life was transformed by that vacuum, and she couldn't stop talking about how much she loved it. And I got home, and I saw the thing at work, and I was a believer. I was convinced, too. And soon, we began telling our family about it, thinking, going through, okay, who in our family needs one of these? Who, who needs their life changed by this vacuum? And so we convinced her parents to buy one. And then after, after they started using it, they tell us that they're in love. And we tell pretty much every single person that we come into contact with, hey, these things are amazing. We love these vacuums because it changed our life. We have pretty boring lives. And that's just a vacuum. So imagine for a moment how God might use a story of obedience, of, of transformed life, of his mercy to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. God doesn't need a person who has all the right answers who knows all of the, uh, the, the responses to the objections against the Christian faith. He just simply wants those who have been transformed by mercy and are willing to be obedient to share that story of mercy with others. And it's through that that the kingdom grows. All it takes is a story of mercy and an obedient heart. My favorite part of this text is just how short Jesus' journey is. Mark 5, 1 through 20, probably only takes place in about a span of six hours or so. Jesus and his uh, disciples, they head over to this uh, pagan territory, and then right after they're done with this encounter, they head right back to Galilee. The, brev the brevity of this trip shows us that Jesus is in charge, that he's not surprised when they see this man, but actually instead that Jesus has an appointment with this man. Jesus travels across the sea. He, he risks his life and his disciples' life in this incredible storm from Mark chapter three, 4, all for this man's soul. He is the Lord of mercy. 
And he has a mission to let that mercy break into this man's misery. God has done the exact same thing for you. He has done the exact same thing for you. He's risked it all for you. He's given you a story of mercy. And now he wants you to share that story with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and beyond. All it takes is a story of mercy and a heart of obedience. If you are found in Christ, you have a story of mercy. Will you have a heart of obedience? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm oftentimes um, reminded of just how much I fall short in the call of discipleship. And so, God, I just ask that this morning you would help each and every one of us to just be faithful, to be good stewards of the story of mercy that we have experienced in our own lives for your glory, for our good, and the spread of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.